0: Good
1: morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. As always, my favorite time of the week is when I get to be here with you live on the air. And if you're on the podcast, it's also my favorite time of the day, week, month, when I get to have you listen after the fact that we've been live on the air. Because it doesn't matter when or where or how you're listening to this show. The key thing is that you're listening, and hopefully you're listening at a level that spurs you to ask better questions, to shift your perspectives, to shift your mind in the way you've been thinking about things, to open yourself up, and in the words of my guest I have on to, to the show today that you're about to meet, so that you're no longer trapped by your own mind, so that you can look at things very differently and go, wait a minute, I can do this differently. There's nothing that says... I have to do this, eat this, say that, be that way, have this career, you can define your whole life in another way. And my guest today is Kevin Hunter. I first met him when I appeared on his show with Harry Brelsford, a dear friend of mine who's been on this show before. They have a show called Digital Northwest News. It's a fantastic show set out on the, the West Coast, the Pacific Northwest. And he wrote a great book that I just really love, and it's called, Is That the Best You Can Do? And I love this question because it challenges us when you ask yourself, is that the best that I can do, to really think about what can we shift? Do we want to shift? Do we want to change the questions we're asking or not? Depending on how you answer, is that the best you can do? So, Kevin, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show and getting up early in the morning to be here with us.
0: Well, I'm glad to be here, and hopefully I can add some value for your listeners.
1: Oh, I absolutely know you do. You can. And, you know, you just have, as they say, the best voice for radio. So,
0: Well, yeah. You, you probably don't have too many guests that come on that have that, um, that golden, solid radio voice. And the funny part was, Uh, Laura, when I got into doing media, it started back in 1999. I didn't know that I had a a radio voice. I I had no clue at all. I just wanted to do something in media. And when I sat down for the first time, the the station manager suggested that I come in on a morning show and just work with one of their morning guys. The guy let me read a few of uh, the news stories that he had and covered a little bit of the sports. And after the show was over, he shuts the mic off and he looks across the desk at me and he says, I hate you. And I I was like, did I do something to offend you? And he's like, no, I hate you. I've been doing this job for 23 years. You walk in here never having done radio before, and you made me sound bad today.
1: That's so funny. You know, I grew up in New York where we had some of the best radio DJs with some of the most amazing voices. And I always said to myself, there's no way I could ever be on radio because I don't have a voice like they have. And here I am.
0: Yeah. There you are.
1: It just goes to show that how we think can lock us into a box or not. I mean, somebody said to me, Lori, you should be on radio. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and, and and here I am almost five years later with mm-hmm. a radio show.
0: You so know, your show is about asking better questions and about asking deeper questions and getting good at asking those questions. And... One of, the, one of the chapters in the book, Is That the Best You Can Do, one of those chapters is titled Get Off Your Fence Line. And that was actually an experience that came from when I was a youngster in high school. I was working on my uncle's farm. And he made a comment to me that the cows left the barn at the same time every day. They'd walk down this fence out towards the pasture. They graze out there for the same amount of time each day. They'd come back along that same fence line, arrive back into the barn at 5 o'clock, um, same time of day, and then they'd all head back into their same stalls. And while he's explaining all of this, um, there was I'm, I'm envisioning our human habits and how many people wear the same clothes or a limited number of clothes. I mean, you could have people have a closet full of clothes, and they probably still wear maybe 10% of it 80% of the time, and the rest of it, the, the other 20% of the time, and, and then I was thinking about the routes we drive to work, and so here I was, you know, 16, 17 years old, and realizing, you know, these interesting parallels to human life, and at the same time thinking, we're not a cow, we have a brain that is so much more diverse, and there's so much potential in the human mind, and yet we get up, every morning about the same time, we walk down the same fence line, we graze on the same grass, we come back to the barn at the same time every day, and when we lift our tail, it's the same, you know, different day. And I was thinking, wow, no wonder we have no capacity to think outside the box. And that was was actually a a very transformational kind of experience for me because there was many of them throughout my lifetime, but I have to tell you that in part, I learned to ask better questions by observing the habit of a cow and realized that I was a lot smarter than that cow was.
1: But yet we, we are smarter, yet in a lot of ways cows are more intelligent than us with a lot of things that they do and in, in the fact that they know what works for them. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, we often don't even know what works for us. We keep doing the same thing over and over again but it's not working for us. Mm -hmm. So how do you answer something like that? I mean, what do you say to somebody? I mean, your favorite question, which is now my favorite question, is that the best you can do? I use it all the time at car dealers or when I'm negotiating something, which I need to talk to you about car negotiating at some point, not necessarily Mm -hmm. today, though. But where, where did that love of questions come from, that moment for you? with the cows? I, I think it must have come from a different place than that.
0: Well, this would surprise a lot of people to hear this, but I graduated high school being the most bashful, quiet person in my class. And I had I, I grew up with a fop in a very entrepreneurial family and my dad was somebody that I regarded as Superman. He seemed to be unafraid of absolutely anything and So one of the things I'm turning over in my mind is, is it possible for me to ever get in the place mentally where my dad's at, where he seems to be unafraid of anything? And one of the conversations I end up having with him when I'm in my sixth grade, traveling in the summertime, he spent a lot of time on the road uh, during those years of my life. and, And the summer of my sixth grade year, I got a chance to spend almost that entire summer on the highway traveling around the United States with my dad. And I was asking him this question about being nervous about this and nervous about that. And dad, you seem like you're afraid of nothing. And he goes, well, I'm probably afraid of just as many things as you, in fact, more things than you, because I've lived more life than you have. Um, So he goes, "I, I probably have a lot more fears than you do. However, I have taught my butterflies how to fly in formation. And if you read the book, that's one of the titles. uh, That's one of the chapter titles in the book. And I was like, you—you taught your butterflies how to fly in formation. It's like, yeah. When you come to those irrational fears in life, and those things that you're convinced you're afraid of, the time to go through that challenge is right here and now. Don't give your mind any more time to justify that fear in your own head go after it right now, because almost every fear you have in life is irrational. If you're not standing on the edge of a cliff, which the fear of falling would be a very natural and rational fear. But in most cases, that's we're, we're not even anything remotely close to that. And yet we're afraid of something. And so I asked him, I said, How do you ever get to a place of where this uh, uh, irrational fear doesn't take you over? And And he gave me two words, which I've been invited to speak at various events um, over, the, over the years and in various states around the United States. And, and I've given this speech many times, and it's titled, Who Cares? And it's, it's been really interesting to me how people have um, really loved that and embraced that. In fact, one seminar that I did, there was, um, it was in the state of Minnesota years ago, and uh, a city uh, called St. Cloud. 1,500 people showed up for this business seminar that was, uh, that came in from all around the United States. I was one of the presenters in a three-day series, and I presented on that topic, Who Cares? That was the title of my speech. And the gentleman who put this on, a very gifted speaker, long time in these uh, circles, and he contacted me afterwards and he said, he said, Kevin, I got schooled at my own seminar. And I was like, wow, what happened? And he said, we gave out surveys to our 1,500 people during that three-day seminar. We asked them to respond with what they'd like to hear more about. And he, he had given a presentation himself. And he goes, I was pretty proud when like 75 people had asked him you know, to come back and present next year. But he said, out of all the surveys turned in, and I think they got like eleven or twelve hundred surveys in. Um, around eight or nine hundred people asked to have the Who Cares guy back, and that is how big a deal it is. That's how how challenged we as human beings are mentally in those little things that can help us overcome our own irrational fears. They're huge, and even more importantly, is as we crush those. Irrational fears we have in life, and as we learn to use "who cares," and we go, we, we cross over those challenges whether they're there or not. We start, we gain confidence. We learn to ask better questions when we run into other irrational fears in life, and so th- those are my words of empowerment. And th- th- my my friend Mark, who called me after this seminar, he was just like, "Wow!" I He goes, "When you gave me that title of your speech before the." event came and i put who cares on the agenda and i'm wondering what the heck is this talk going to be about he goes i didn't have any idea how trapped most human beings are in their own minds and yeah it's by it's by all of our habits it's by everything we do that starts to limit our focus and we become afraid of things that are outside of that focus and let me give you an, let me give you an example of something that's like this super irrational fear that pretty much everybody who's listening out there today has. Okay. And that's, and that's this. What, Laura, do you have some favorite foods?
1: I do not the healthiest foods. (laughs) Although, you know, I have one of my all time favorite foods is my mom's roast chicken. I can't make it just like the way she used to before she passed, but roast chicken and chocolate.
0: Okay, so people in our in our listening audience all of whom would say yeah, absolutely I have some favorite foods. Well, we are we are terribly narrow-minded when it comes to food. Most people are. And and those favorite foods tend to be what we eat. And if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we don't like what we see, it has a lot to do with what our favorite foods are. And the so, but but here's what I was going back to a significantly irrational fear. Okay. Most people will not eat something they have not tried before because they're not sure if they would like it or not. And, True. And, and most of, most people have just this this what I like or what I don't like. These are these are all these irrational ideas they put into their into their heads. And I can tell you from personal experience that was one of the big fears that I had. I, I realized it. Was a huge fear that I had, and I would eat a limited number of foods three times a day, seven days a week, all, all year round. That was my thing, and it wasn't until I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis 19 years ago, and I, I, they told me I should go out and take these anti-inflammatory drugs and everything else, and I was just like, "Wow, that that seems like a, uh, a long-term prescription for disaster." I've seen family members who had arthritis and, and, and where, they, where they ended up with that. And so right. I started looking for other ideas. And all of a sudden, I realized that what I eat was one of my problems. And then I had to learn to like things that I thought I didn't like before. And where I'm at today, so, so I was this very narrow minded eater years ago and had could tell you exactly what my favorites were. And today, I don't eat out that much because, to be honest with you, there's very few restaurants that eat food that's good for a guy who has arthritis. I, have, okay. I lead an entirely pain-free life by knowing how to eat the right foods, and most of those I have to go out and shop or grow my own or whatever. But, um, it's, we'll have it's to have you back
1: on home, just to talk about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, most of it's a home, home-cooked home meal, and okay. that's what allows me to have no symptoms of arthritis today. If you, All
1: right. Let's, you, let's just go back to this whole idea of eating thing, though, okay? Because yeah. it, it's, it's, you're using it as a metaphor for being trapped in our own minds with yep. saying that it, the way you eat could potentially be the way you respond to change.
0: Yes. Yes, okay. definitely. Um so let me, let me give you let a me really just, quick example of where, where that went for me is today, if I'm sitting in a restaurant and the waitress brings me a menu, this is just to show you even how the person working there is, has these fears around food. Um, if, I'm sitting, if they bring me a menu, I'll hand it right back to he or she and just say, whatever you think is best on the menu, bring that to me. And they'll immediately start asking me questions. And I'll say, I'm going to take my tip off the table if you ruin my surprise with any more questions. <laughs> Go to the kitchen and get me whatever you think is good. And here this person who has, the, you know, already knows what is good on the menu is afraid to bring me that good food because they're thinking I might not like it. Right. And, yeah. And so you think of, you know, something as simple as food, but there's all kinds of things in our life there that irrational fears. Shut off that um, peripheral view that we would have of so many other things, and we cannot ask better questions when the focus of our mind is on so few selections. We've we've taken all these favorites of clothes and routes to work and food we eat and everything else, and it's completely narrowed our thought process to where we don't even think to ask what does an avocado taste like because we're pretty we never tried it and we're sure we don't like it.
1: All right, so how does somebody then begin, I know that one of the big questions they can ask, which you're a proponent of, is, is that the best you can do? For me, one of my big questions is, what would a wise woman do when, Mm -hmm. or somebody wiser than me do in this situation? What are some steps that people can take, because not everybody wants to walk into a restaurant they've never been in before and say, give me anything?
0: Oh, no, that would be very fearful. And I didn't start there either. And so when I started realizing that these were things that were trapping me in my own mind, what I would do where I started, first of all, is I'd go to a restaurant, pull the menu out. I'd find three things in the menu that I was pretty sure that I would like. I would then grade them. There was a number one in that three that I really wanted the most. Maybe it was a bacon cheeseburger. Like, all right, you're not having that today. Are the other two, which is your favorite? Oh, well, definitely, you know, the club sandwich. I'd X that off. Okay, you're having the other one. So I started with smaller steps and, and then eventually got around to where, you know, I could look at a group of foods. So let's say maybe there was, I, I was this burger guy, I have to be honest. So, so maybe, maybe there was like 12 different burgers on the thing. And even in that category, there were still some of them that I, I, I might not like. And so I would just take the menu and, without looking, put my finger on it and then look to see where my finger landed, and I'd order that burger. Okay. So there, you have to take smaller steps and give, yourself, give, your, give your brain permission to kind of go, like, oh, snap, I was, I was able to do that. And uh, maybe you can get to a point down the road where you could order anything. But that's where I am today.
1: Okay, well what about taking that analogy into business? I have a lot of entrepreneurs, my main audience are entrepreneurs or people who are in business and want to shift how they are in business. How did they take that analogy into work?
0: We have, we have acquired fact boxes. And we, so things that we have learned either through experience or education um, there can be all kinds of different things that end up in our fact box, but all of us have a fact box. And there are things that we have stopped challenging and asking questions about because we've already determined that we know that to be true. And it doesn't really matter what it is. There are things we have known to become true. And I challenge people in business all the time to grab facts out of your fact box. So whatever they are that you you seem to Hold so true in your organization. Grab those things out of your fact box. We are in the lumber business. That's one of your facts if you're a lumber yard. We're in the lumber business. Pull that fact out of your box and ask yourself this. If I wasn't in the lumber business, what would I be doing instead? And you're like, oh, you mean if this thing wasn't true, what would I be doing instead? Yes, exactly. What would you be doing instead? And people will discover things about their business as a result of challenging those facts. You know, if 100 people walk in, let's use the dealership for a moment. If 100 people walk into the dealership, one of the statistics in the car business is that 18% of the people, only 18% of the people will return. So that's one of the facts they have in the box. If this 18% number was not true, what could it be instead? And they're like, well, I don't know. I guess I'd have to, is, is it possible that it was 30% or 40%? Okay, let's imagine that it was. What would have to be different about what I do in order for that number to be 40%? And I did this experiment in the car business. That's, how, that's where the question, is that the best you can do, came from. Um, because I spent some time in the car business. I wanted to research what was going on. In that, that area of the our business world, because it's one of the, every year Gallup does a poll and they rate um, who are the least trusted people, least trusted professions in the United States. We see what's going on in Congress today. Congress people join with a car salesman as being the least trusted <laughs> individuals of any profession. That doesn't at the surprise bottom of the list. me.
1: Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me in, in the least.
0: Yeah. And so, so here are these here are these people that are sitting on the bottom, and you're going, why do only 18% of their customers ever return it? And I was like, so what if you what if we shattered that um, paradigm, and instead of the customer always asking the salesperson, you know, when they throw this car deal on the table for him, is that the best you can do? What if the salesman asked himself asked himself that question, and said, um, is that the best you can do? I I hope you aren't hearing that beeping because somebody's beeping in on my line here. Um, Oh, that's
1: okay. So, you know, you talk about using the car dealers as an example of questions we can ask ourselves before our clients ask them. I mean, Audi North Orlando, totally like that. They ask themselves, is that the best you can do before they pitch the customer? I I haven't owned a Toyota in a really long time, but I bought my Toyota from Benji in Toyota of Stamford, Connecticut. And he helped me negotiate a deal with another dealer somewhere that wasn't even Toyota after I had moved because he asks himself all the time, is that the best you can do? And I've sent him customers over the years. He's still in car sales. People Mm -hmm. come back to him and refer him all the time because he's always asking, is that the best I can do for this person, for my life, for my business? Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that such a brilliant thought, Kevin, this idea that why wait for our potential clients to ask us that question? Let's ask it of ourselves first. But yet it just seems like so many people never think of doing that because they just they think they're doing the best that they can do.
0: Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that, even from the customer standpoint, those people that are sitting in the dealership and they're asking the salesperson, is that the best you can do? No matter what the offer is that comes on the table, the customer immediately says, is that the best you can do? And now think of yourself as the individual. So we're thinking about, you know, the business audience, perhaps, that's out there. They're doing the exact same thing. It doesn't matter what walk of life they're coming from. They're walking into a dealership as well. And, you know, shopping this car and then sitting down going over the numbers and they ask the person is that the best you can do now let's put the shoe on the other foot did you talk to your own bank or credit union before you went to that dealership to see what rates you qualify for if you're going to finance if the answer is no that wasn't the best you could do
1: did okay and hang, on to, hang on, on to that thought kevin because we're getting ready to go into the national news everybody we are here with kevin hunter he is talking about the question everybody should be asking is that the best you can do. I want you to think about that during the national news break, or pause it on the podcast. Think about one aspect of your life and ask yourself: In business and in life, am I doing the best that I can? We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. We are here. If you're just joining us with Kevin Hunter, we had an incredible first half of the show. Catch it on podcast anywhere you're best you listen to podcasts. If you uh, missed the first half on iHeartRadio. And if you do listen to us on podcasts, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps the show get found, and I'd really appreciate it. And I'd love to know what you think of the show. And the best way to do that is to rate and review it on the podcast platforms, or you can always email me at laura at laurasteward.com. So, Kevin, we were talking the first half of the show about what I think is an incredible book, that poses so many brilliant questions. Um, Your book is called, Is That the Best You Can Do? It came out several years ago, and I think it's even more relevant today, and it fits a lot with even my own book, What Would a Wise Woman Do? This idea that we can get trapped by our own minds, get stuck in a rut on autopilot, doing the same things over and over and over again, like as you talked about your experience when you were 15, 16 years old, working at a farm, watching all the cows go out along the fence line. Mm -hmm. What is it about ourselves as business owners, as people in the world, that makes us want to go into autopilot, yet when we're there, we go, I don't want to be in this comfort zone anymore, but yet we get so stuck in it. It's very hard to get ourselves outside of the rut.
0: I think as human beings, we gravitate towards comfort, being being comfortable. and But you can actually get to a place to where you're comfortable being uncomfortable, if that makes any sense. You can be in a place mentally in life to where not having the answer is actually okay with you. You can be in a place mentally in life where what other people say about you behind your back really doesn't matter anymore. You can be in those places where... I think people like spend all this, you know, thinking about comfort and am I good enough or, and, you know, am I saying the right things and am I doing the right things? We like, it's, it's natural human nature for us to ask these kinds of questions and gravitate towards comfort. But we, we if, if we start to practice in small ways, well, then we can be, we can learn to become comfortable with those things that we thought were uncomfortable before. And so, you know, we were talking about the small way to lead into learning how to be able to eat any kind of food at a, at a restaurant, as an example. But let me give you some small things that you can, you can do at home and every day in your life. Um, that section of, That section of the closet that you have pulled all of your favorite clothes out of, have you ever considered taking those favorite clothes? So identify what they are, the favorite clothes. Take them out of your closet. Go put them in another closet just for a week. And then wear the best of that you think of out of the balance of those clothing. And you'll start to realize, like, how funny it is that you wear the same things. And even, you know, speaking to the guys out there in the audience, your T-shirt drawer. You open that T-shirt drawer, and the stuff that's on the top is the only thing that's changing because you wear those same shirts all the time. They go to the laundry, you know, get washed, folded, put back in the drawer. They're sitting back on top, and you keep recycling. Do you ever reach on the bottom of the drawer and just grab something out of there and put it on? If, it's, if, it's, if you're not going to wear it, throw it in the trash. Get rid of it. But it, it's been sitting, been sitting in the bottom of your drawer, and you haven't been wearing it. And there are really small little things that we can do. When I go to a gas station and, and fuel up, there's always there's generally always somebody on the other side of the pump. I have a conversation with this person. Hey, how how you doing? How's how's life treating you? Or I might ask them for directions to my own house. You have any idea? I'm I'm looking uh, for you know the, the the city. Maybe first of all start with that. And I'm in a different city. And hey, are you are you familiar with how to get to uh, Elk River? Ah oh, yes, yeah, right up so and so. and in my brain, I, I'm probably thinking this is a really dumb question because of course I know where I live. But it's giving me permission to have a conversation with a perfect stranger. And you walk away from that or drive away from that gas station, and your brain is kind of going like, wow, that was really a a very positive experience. And and you notice something that happens to your self-confidence every single time you do that. When you wear something as simple as a different T-shirt that you were pretty sure you didn't like, but you wore it that day anyway, it does something to your self-confidence. Your comfort zone just got a tiny little bit bigger because you wore a shirt that you don't normally wear or you wore pants that you don't normally wear. And if you have this route, like it's funny, I, I, I might be driving around uh, with, with somebody who this particular area is the most familiar with for them. And, and I might take a different route from their house to the restaurant we're going to or wherever. And they'll say, um, I, I usually go right here. Why don't you take a right right here? And on purpose, I'll drive straight through the intersection and turn somewhere else. And they're, like, looking at me like, well, what, are you, what are you doing? And I said, well, I got a GPS. And I was, well, that's not the shortest route, they'll tell me. And all they're, tell, all they're talking to me about is the rut that they're in. And so there's these little things that we can be practicing every single day if we recognize that in a small way there's a tendency that our comfort zone is driving us into, break it. If, if there's a client that you wanted to call after this show today, Laura, you, you probably might be thinking, well, I should have some coffee first, and then maybe I you know, need to get on the Internet, and maybe I need to this. And if your brain is guiding you down that way of avoiding the phone call, well, then break that, break that fear, break that draw to comfort right now, go pick the phone up and call the person the moment you're off the show there are little things that we can do all the time that, that allow our brain to recognize that these irrational fears don't have to control us. And as these small fears stop controlling you, your brain starts seeing the same things from a totally different perspective. And those amazing questions, like, is that the best you can do, they'll start to occur to you a lot more often in your life.
1: There was one thing in your book, well, there are lots of different things. I have tons of notes just on on the book, but there was an aspect of it that I thought was fascinating because it's an issue I see my own clients deal with, and I know a lot of my listeners deal with, and you call it only lead thirsty horses yeah. And to me, this was really fascinating because, building off of what you had just said about, you know, the rut and not being willing to make the phone call right after, like, I get off the air or any of those things that might be going on, you know, like step into that discomfort. We all feel like we have to take everybody on, every client, everybody. And if one person doesn't want us, then that's the one we go after even more but yet you ascribe to this idea that you only want to lead thirsty horses. Can you expand upon this concept because you really weave it brilliantly in with innovators, early adopters, early majority, very much stuff that Daniel Burris, who wrote The Anticipatory Organization, talks about. I don't know if you know Daniel, but I I just love and adore this man He's so brilliant. So why is it that... We re- most of us really only want to lead thirsty horses, but yet we take the ones that don't want to drink when we get them there.
0: The, the thing is, is that people can reinvent themselves by really wrapping their mind around leading only thirsty horses. Because we, we, ha- we have limited time in life. We have limited time in our day. And if we're only spending our time with thirsty horses, you know, all of a sudden this you know, I think we would all agree that having a positive attitude is the most important thing we can bring to our day each day. And if we're going to have a positive attitude, well, it's exciting working with thirsty horses. And so let me give you a, a couple of ways that you can make sure that you're doing that. You're, you're familiar with the discussions around um, our personal circle of influence. Well, I put myself in the middle of that circle. And based on a score of 1 to 10, if, if everything that I wanted to do in life, I'm sitting right now at an 8. All the various categories. So will write down all the various things that are really important for you to be accomplishing in life. And where are you at? On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at? And then average all that out. Well, my score right now, based on the 1 to 10, is an 8. I'm very, very happy with what I've done. And, of course, I can do more. Um, but then, most importantly, I look at the five most influential either people or things that are around me. So, of course, that would be my spouse would be one of them. Um, They can be colleagues. They can be friends. They can be family. They might be parents. They might be whomever. But look at each of those people, and you're going to give them a score, too. So write down who those five people are that around you, that are closest to you, and write down their score as well, and not – based on what they want to do with their life. So let's say there's somebody who's a billionaire who's in that circle. Um, Maybe they're doing all kinds of things you would have no interest in whatsoever. That's not the point of doing this. The point is to say how relevant with what that person's goals are and what they're doing, how relevant is that to my own goals and aspirations in life? So I'm going to score that person based on that, not based on how successful they either are or aren't in their own life. So now I give them a score, too. And here's the thing. If that score is not equal to or greater than your own, people who are equal to or greater than your own, they are what I call your engines in life. And and they're going to help you go places that you never even thought were possible. So my goal is to have at least three, if not four, of those five people around me who are a score of 8, 9, or a 10. And then I have permission to have one, possibly two, that are an anchor. So anybody who's a seven, six, five, in that they're going to be my anchors. And as leaders, all of us will have an anchor in our life somewhere. And this is somebody that we're mentoring, that we're developing, that we're helping come along. So we're like the engine in their circle of influence. Okay, But there's something that's equally important to all of this. So this is the thirsty horses thing where this is where this all comes into play is you're also going to give them a positive and a negative. And if anybody in that circle gets a minus, Laura, they immediately move out of that close circle that I'm associated with. That has to be a plus. I don't get, nobody gets to be an anchor in my life and be a negative influence in any way, shape, or form. They have to be somebody that has a positive outlook on life, that they're learning, that they're doing whatever. And I have had situations where people you know, might be in that so-called negative mindset. Well, I'll sit down and visit with them, because if they're sitting in my personal circle of influence, I'm concerned about that. I'll have some conversation with them. I will have them do this same exercise for themselves. And if they're not interested in doing it all, well, then I'm just like, you know, we're probably going to have a lot less contact moving forward. But most of, most of the time, that's the case. They're interested in sitting down and doing this for themselves. And i will help them understand where maybe they have a few too many anchors and negative influences in their life. And that's transferring, spilling over into being a negative influence in my life. And I don't want those horses that aren't thirsty to move forward in life. So... How I've acquired that thirsty horse around me is really around evaluating them based on what I want to do with my life and give, giving them either a positive or uh, negative score, and it has to be positive. Those are my thirsty horses.
1: Okay. And, and, and at different times, people may be in a temporarily negative space for whatever might be going on, but you're moving them out of your immediate circle but not necessarily cutting them out completely knowing the situation they're in, but you're not going to allow them to drag you down.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to, when you talk about how we try to fix these, if there was some person, maybe, maybe we've been friends for years, but there was some person who was spending time in the community disparaging me for this or that, or maybe they made comments to family members that were negative or whatever. Some people spent so dang much time on that and so much angst around that negative situation is just like you know go give it a little bit of time to figure out what the seed of it is and and that sort of thing but you have to as quickly as possible move that thing out of your immediate circle of influence and have those positive things there and my my dad used to tell me he said you know if you could pull up because i've always i had a great sense of humor and i love to pull pranks on my friends and things like that and he'd say, you know, if you could pull a joke on one of your friends and that joke could go on for like three or four or five years, wouldn't that be an amazing joke? I was like, yes, it would. That'd be great to be able to just keep pulling the same prank on my friend and he'd just never get it and be funny for years. And he goes, on the flip side of that, what if you wanted to ruin, you know, you got somebody you really dislike and you wanted to ruin four or five, six years, maybe 10 years of... Just say or do something that sets them off in the next decade. And, and, and he goes, so think of those people in, in your own life who are maybe have said or done these things. Are you really going to allow them? You know, they, they, they peed in your Wheaties on one day. Are you really going to allow them to make that two days and then a week and then a month and then a year? And heck No. They're not a thirsty horse. They're not interested in helping move you in a positive direction. They're not one of your engines. The only thing they're doing is dragging you down. Don't spend any time on that, more okay. than, so, than was just necessary right in the beginning. But put it aside and only deal with those thir- thirsty horses. You don't have the time for that drama. And, these,
1: and are, that these are thirsty horses that actually want to drink, and that's why you're asking them questions. To, to determine are they lead a horse to water but they won't drink or are they thirsty and they want to drink when the water is in front of them, they actually do drink. And I think that's such a critical component to it, Kevin, and the way you explain it and how we can find those people in our lives, the way you just described it, is not only finding the thirsty horses but the ones who, when you put water in front of them, actually drink.
0: You know, let me let me take it a step further because there's a way to determine a thirsty horse before you even lead them. Because okay. it is really frustrating, putting all this time leading this horse, convincing them they should finally follow you or work with you or whatever, and all this time leading them to where there's water only to get there and have them not drink. That is really frustrating.
1: Oh, so frustrating.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let me give you let me give you a really quick, easy litmus test.
1: Okay, it's got to be really
0: quick. <laughs> Yeah, on how to determine the thirsty horse before you start leading them. Okay. I'm going to give you two acronyms. One of them is OAR. O-A-R. The other is BED, uh, B-E-D. So let's start with the OR because this is the thirsty horse. All right, this you only OAR, have a few minutes. So This O-A-R stands for Ownership, Accountability, Responsibility. Do they take ownership for where they're at? Do they take responsibility for fixing the things that they need to in their life? And are they accountable to those uh, truths, those things in their life. If they are, that's a thirsty horse. That's somebody you can help and work with. On the flip side of that, what I call the -the below-the-line thinking, BED stands for blame, excuses, denial. I can have limited conversation with somebody and find out if they blame a lot of other people, they blame the market, they make excuses for their failures, their denial of the real truths in their lives. That is not a thirsty horse. All you have to do is figure out what the questions are that lead to the responses that help you understand whether they're a victor that's above the line thinking in this ownership, accountability, responsibility, or whether a victim. The blame, excuse is denial. That victim is a, not a thirsty horse. Don't waste your time with that person. They're taking success and quality away from your life.
1: And yet so many entrepreneurs, I see this all the time, They focus on the trouble client, the client that no matter what they do, they can't seem to close the deal, they can't seem to make the customer happy, it seems to cost them more than they make off the client versus focusing on the 95% of the clients that want to be with them that actually really are thirsty and want to drink the water. How can those people listening out here who are not making those decisions, what can they say to themselves, what question can they ask themselves to permanently or begin to shift themselves into a different way of thinking
0: versus it's the t- it's the title of the book. Is that the best you can do? So no matter what goals you put up, no matter what results you produce for those goals, you need to start asking yourself, is that the best you can do? You need to put it into your goal planning. You need to put it in the end of your day. When you finish your work day and you've accomplished all those goals and done all those things that you thought you could do, you need to ask yourself, is that the best you can do? If you spent your whole day on Facebook arguing and fighting with somebody because they said this or that and you're all caught up in this drama, ask yourself, is that the best you can do? You're, You're going to find out that this question will empower you to do some absolutely amazing things in life, and it challenges us in a way in in, in which very few things do. I have seen this question transform people's business. Start asking yourself, is that the best you can do, and watch it change your life.
1: I, I love it. I think it is one of the most powerful questions going into the end of the year That. I can ask myself and that all my listeners can ask for themselves, and I, Kevin, I think it would be so cool if the listeners of this show, whether on podcast or live, were to post out on social media to us or email us what they've learned from that, mm-hmm. asking themselves is that the best they can do, how they shifted and changed. What do you think about that?
0: I'd love to hear from them.
1: Okay, so uh, what's most, the best way?
0: Stories are amazing. <laughs>
1: What's, what's the best way for people to reach out to you?
0: Um, they can find me on, uh, on, on, on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Kevin Hunter. There's, there's tons of people reach me through that. Thousands of people do every single year um, on that YouTube channel. There's all kinds of stories that I've covered there. They can also email me. Um, I'll give them an email that comes directly to my phone. It's wainfo2017 at gmail.com. It's w-a-i-n-f-o-2-0-1-7 at gmail.com. You can also email me directly there. That comes to the desk in which I formulate and work on regularly to develop other stories that I'm working on. So I'll see that right away. I would love to hear your success stories and how you're using, is that the best you can do? That challenging question and uh, change your life, change your business with it.
1: it. We tend to think that a question doesn't have the ability to transform us at a root level, but I've seen the reverse happen, which is why both of us, Kevin, we love questions, because we've seen how what seems like an innocent question is that the best you can do can literally shake the foundations. Of your life, asking what would a wise woman do in this situation, what would somebody wiser than me do, can open yourself to new possibilities, new ways of thinking, new perspectives, and and not just around car buying as your your YouTube channel is so filled with, but about our lives, about the people we're around, around um, our business and, and what we want to be doing from our lives. So. What is, what is next for you around this whole idea of questions?
0: You know, the, with, with what has happened in our media in this country and what has happened with information, a, a ton of censorship, a, a ton of filtering of data and information, um, I'm really around helping people start to use their minds and, and, and stop just accepting a lot of this I, I kind of refer to it as mindless drivel that's happening in the news and everything else these days. So I, there's a lot of things that I'm working on right now. We we just recently, not long ago, launched an organization, nowevents.org. And we're inviting speakers from all around the country, great minds that have demonstrated success in a lot of different categories. And we're starting to put on events to help bring an unfiltered message directly to people, directly to audiences, and most of this is around stimulating thought, giving people an opportunity to think, think bigger, think better. And even, I want to go back to some because I know we're really short on time here. I want to make sure we don't miss this. This question, is that the best you can do, Laura? It has even changed my relationship because you could be having an argument with your spouse and walk out the back door of the, the house and you slam the door and you stand on the step and all of a sudden, is that the best you can do? That question will make you turn around, walk back into the house, and apologize for your actions. It will, it will take conflict out of your life. It will take all these negative things away from you that you've been holding on to and ruining yourself in so many different ways. Ask yourself, is that the best you can do? And that's a question that we're using for our audiences as well in nowevents.org. Um, is that the best you can do? It's, it's uh, amazing where people can go when they learn to ask themselves the right questions.
1: I, I love that. We'll share one more time, best way for people to reach out to you, Kevin.
0: Reach me at WAINFO, wainfo o two zero one seven at gmail.com. You can also find me on YouTube, YouTube forward slash uh, Kevin Hunter. And if you'd like to reach me in our events organization, nowevents.org, I'm easy to find on the web. Thanks All for right. having me today, Laura.
1: Thank you for being here, Kevin, so much. And everybody, I really encourage you to ask, is that the best you can do at every moment in your life? To stop, pause, and think about it. If you're driving your car, be very careful because the answer may surprise you and I don't want you to get into an accident. Remember, everybody, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone, and hug someone you love.
0: You've been listening to It's All About The Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.